The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 175. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for those things, you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. You've got all my social media buttons at the top of the page. You can also give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders, and you get on my email list. Also, you want to get on my McClanahan Academy email list because only people on that particular email list are going to get the deals on any future classes, and I have one that will be released for pre-order on September 17th. It is a class on the Constitution, so I'm telling you, it's a constitutional history class. It is a class you're going to want to get, and only if you are on the email list will you get the deal. So it will be pre-order. The class will not be released till October in full, but McClanahan Academy subscribers will be able to get the class on pre-order, and there will be a little bit of it released that particular week. But the full class will not be released till October. However, once the full class is released... It will only be full price. So the pre-order folks, those all McClanahan Academy's email list, will be the only ones who get the deal. So you're going to want to get on that to get the best deals. I'll also discount my other classes as well uh, during that promotional period. So you're going to want to do this. Get on the McClanahan Academy email list. It is a great way to save some bucks on an awesome uh, educational opportunity. All right. Uh, That said... I have to update my Pigskin Pick'em League. If you uh, have subscribed to my email, you know that uh, last week I sent an email saying, look, I'm doing a a Pigskin Pick'em NFL League. Get involved. You can pick against me. And uh, several of you have taken me up on this. I think it's about 15 people, 15, 16 people in the league now, something like that. Uh, you can still join. It's not too late to join. If you're, uh, if you just got to go to ESPN.com and uh, go into their fantasy pigskin pick them. Uh, look for the look for the group. It's Brian McClanahan Show. Uh, it's free to join. We're not doing anything for money. It's just for fun. But uh, I've got to update this. So after the first week of the season, we've got the first results in, and right now, yours truly is in third place. Uh, Chef Jim is number one in the league right now. 14 correct picks last week out of 15. Nice job, Chef Jim. Yours truly got 10 out of 15. So uh, I got to pick up my game. There's a couple other people in front of me. Uh, But uh, we'll see how this goes. If you still want to join, though, it's not too late. You can get in on the the action and uh, come on out and, and pick games. Uh, we'll do it every week. It's week to week. So if you if you get in late, of course you you won't be in the running to win the overall uh, title for the league. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll send somebody who wins the league if it's not me. Something nice. But um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of great picks. So get on out there. Get in the pigskin pig pick 'em league with me, uh, and have a good time with it. Um, I've always loved picking football games. So this is a, a low stress. No money involved, a lot of fun. You can see if you can stack up against my picks. And obviously, three of you are doing better than me. So uh, this is this is going to be fun. All right, well, let's talk about the material for the week. Um, 
Oh, by the way, on that pigskin pick'em, let me before I say this. If you do want to join, you go to Brian McClanahan Show. The password is Academy. You got to have a password to get in, so it's Academy, and um, capital A Academy. So go on out there and join that. All right, well, let's talk about the material of the week, and this is something that a um, listener sent me, and it has to do with the Seventeenth Amendment. Um, there has been a a push, and even by yours truly at times, I've mentioned this, and I've mentioned that the Seventeenth Amendment should be repealed. Now, the Seventeenth Amendment was a bad idea when it was ratified. It was ratified during the Progressive Era. The idea was that we were going to get rid of all these professional um, political organizations, these parties that picked the candidates for Senate. You know, it was done in a back room, smoke-filled room, and the people had no input on who was going to be their senator. And so this was democracy in action. We're going to get democracy to pick people to be in the U.S. Senate, and it's going to be more representative of the people, and this is going to be better for the U.S. government. So we got the 17th Amendment during the Progressive Era, the direct election of senators. And so the idea has been that it needs to be repealed because it actually removed the state state legislature, as I should say, from the process and place it in the hands of the people of the state. Um, so that's a very noble cause, I think, to do this. It would be one step forward in revisiting federalism in America. And of course, if you look at the original Constitution, this is something I'm going to talk about in this Constitution class. In fact, I spent a considerable amount of time on what the founding generation considered to be the building blocks of the Union, this federal republic, which were the states. Um, And I'm going to talk more about this in that particular course. So I thought this was a nice introduction to what you're going to get, at least sort of, uh, in what you're going to get. The founding generation thought that the Senate was the only truly federal part of the entire Constitution. And what I mean by that is that the the House of Representatives, they called it a national part of the government. Why? Because the people picked the representatives. The people picked the members of the House of Representatives in districts set up in the states. So the states still had a role in that. Okay, But this was more of a national legislature, part of the, of the government, than anything else. The states then, the state legislatures then, were represented by the Senate. And if you look at the design of the Constitution, the states and the Senate have a tremendous amount of power to check anything in that government, both, uh, actually all three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. Here's how. They check the power of the House of Representatives because they have to sign off on anything that the House will do. It's a bicameral legislature, so the Senate has a role in determining what what legislation is going to be passed. It has a check on the executive branch because it has advisory control over foreign policy. It has to advise and consent when it comes to treaties. It also has advisory control over the executive branch in terms of appointments, which extends to the judicial branch, as we've seen in this farce of a judiciary hearing uh, with uh, this past week uh, with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. But it has advisory control there. It can refuse to appoint members of the federal bench. So, 
It has control over all three branches of government, and it supposedly represents the fourth leg of the government, which is the states. It represents the states. Now, you can make a case that um, if the states aren't represented any longer because this is now direct election, however, you can also say the states are still represented, this is the argument made, because they represent the people of the states. Either way, um, I, I think that argument falls apart. But the 17th Amendment, as you amend the Constitution, as you amend the Constitution, you fundamentally alter what was in the original document. That's the point of amendments, and amendments change things. So the, this amendment has changed the Union from a federal republic to a national government. In the founding period, when the Constitution was being argued in Philadelphia, and uh, there was a, a push by nationalists there to have the Senate, including James Madison, to have the Senate um, be part of a national government. It was going to be elected just like the House of Representatives, and this was rejected in favor of the model that we got in the original document, which is where the state legislatures picked the senators. And that stayed intact all up until the 20th century. Now, what happened? Why, and I explained you know, what the progressives were thinking here in getting this amendment. But even before that, it's clear that the state started using canvassing. So in other words, they would go out and they would ask the public who they thought should be the senator. So they would canvass. This is exactly what happened, what was going on in 1858 in the very famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Why Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas were out debating, why would they do that? When they were going to be elected by the state legislature. It didn't matter what the people thought, but the point was a state legislature would listen to the people. This is called canvassing. They would listen to the people as to who they thought should be the senator, and then they would pick that person. So that was the idea of having a situation where the candidates would actually go out and debate or try to get the vote of the people because they understood that those people would then choose legislators for the state legislature that would select those individuals, or they would put pressure on their state legislature or their representatives to elect those individuals. This is canvassing. And a lot of states did this. It wasn't just in the hands of the legislature. The legislature itself would supposedly listen to the, to the democratic, quote-unquote, impulse of the state and select the senator that they thought would be the individual who, who the people wanted, the people of the state. So why have the middleman was the idea when you can just bypass the middleman, which is the legislature, and go right in to selecting the Senate, the senator, directly. So that's the argument. Now, I think that uh, this is a bad idea. I think the state legislature should still elect the senators, and it would at least put more focus on federalism. Now, I'm going to talk about this federalism situation in a second, but one of the arguments, of course, for this repeal of the 17th is how it would affect the Senate itself. Not just would the senators vote for the interests of their state and 
promote federalism, but how would it affect the Senate? If you look at the composition of the United States Senate right now, it's a razor-thin majority for Republicans. Razor-thin. But if you look at the composition of the state legislatures, and if the state legislatures simply voted on partisan lines to pick senators, and that would probably happen. I don't think you can make a case that um, in, in this currently polarized on party American electorate, the American polity, you wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think there'd really be a case for that. Um, you would have the state legislatures choose members of their own party, and this is generally the way it worked anyways. You would have members of the state legislatures choose members of their own party to go to the United States Senate. So we have currently have a Senate uh, that's a razor-thin majority for the Republican Party. There are 51 Republican members of the Senate and 47 Democrats. That's razor thin majority, right? But if you look at, if you were to say, okay, well, let's do this by state. Currently, there are 31 Republican-controlled state legislatures, meaning there would probably be 62 Republican senators if you repealed the 17th Amendment. There would be 62 instead of 51. That is an 11-seat increase for the Republicans. There are 14 Democrat-controlled legislatures, meaning there will be 28 Democrats in the Senate. 28, that's it. Uh, there will be four split legislatures. Um, so who knows what would happen there. You might get another Republican. Maybe you'd have one Republican, one Democrat. Who knows? Uh, you might get eight more Democrats. You might get eight more Republicans. Potentially, you could have uh, close to 70 Republicans in the Senate, potentially. Uh, and then there is, uh, if, you, if you add in um, the, the one state, I believe, is also a split state. But so you have, you have these split states or you have this um, situation where you have, well, I think the other one, that's a, it's a to be determined um, because of an election, but it's, I think it's shading more towards Republican. I can't remember right off the top of my head. Uh, so you've got a situation, regardless, where you'd have at least 62 Republican senators, probably more. You'd probably have close to 65. You could, you could make a case maybe close to 65 Republican senators. So that's one of the, one of the reasons why people believe that the 17th Amendment would fundamentally alter the United States government if you repealed it. One, is, one of the reasons is because of the United States Senate itself. And imagine if there were 65 Republican senators you might have an entirely different composition of the U.S. Senate. Now, also, when the state legislature is in control of this, these senators, and I'm not a big believer in Republican-Democrat, the Republicans are any better than the Democrat on a host of issues, uh, but you potentially would have more, quote-unquote, conservative, and this is the argument coming from the right, more conservative senators if the state legislatures pick these people, because the state legislatures tend to be, at times, more conservative than the candidates who are running for United States Congress. They can be, because it's more localized. And these individuals would have a little bit more control, theoretically, over uh, how these people would vote. 
I don't think they would have much more control, but they would theoretically have more control. So you've got senators that would be more in line with the political spectrum of the state to where they come from um, in terms of not having to appeal to anything but the majority of the state legislature. You'd have a larger majority in the Senate for Republicans. It would be virtually impossible at this point to consider that there would ever be a situation where you would have the Republicans not in control of at least one uh, one chamber of the United States Congress unless they started losing state legislatures. Now, that could happen. That could happen. One of the other benefits to having the Senate chosen by the states would be that people would have more pay more attention to what happens in their state legislature. You would be interested because these individuals would have control over who gets to go to the United States Senate. So you would be much more interested in, in who is running for your local district, for your state legislature, than you are now. Most of these races, you have very low turnout. People don't really care what happens at the state level. So it would get people interested in what happens at the state level, which is something that would be, I think, beneficial uh, to the entire process. So the 17th Amendment should be repealed. Now the question is, would repealing the 17th Amendment do much to uh, bring back federalism in America? This is the argument that, well, if you, if you um, uh, repeal the 17th, more people are going to be interested in federalism and the states are going to be more interested in voting their own interests and blocking national legislation that's unconstitutional. And there was a piece published uh, in the Daily Signal. Uh, let me go back up here and look at the date. August 21st by a guy named John York. Now, I'm not familiar with John York. Um, he, is, uh, he has a Ph.D., He's a policy analyst in the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. Okay. Um, so he works at Heritage. Uh, I don't know where he received his Ph.D. from. I don't know what it was in. I don't know if it was in political science. But anyways, he, he writes a, a piece entitled... Some conservatives want to repeal the 17th Amendment. Here's why they're misguided. Here's why they're misguided. Um, and he, he attacks it from this way. He says, quote, he begins by saying conservatives want to repeal, but he says this, quote, they argue that giving state governments a more formal and direct representation in Congress would resuscitate constitutional federalism which has been adversely affected by the Progressive Era Amendment passed by Congress in 1912 and ratified by the states a year later. Advocates of repeal reason that under the sway of state legislators, senators would rein in federal government overreach and uh, staunch its growth. But as I detailed in a recent report, changing the means by which we select U.S. senators may not have the positive impact advocates hope. Post-repeal, senators and state legislators alike would still have strong incentives to keep significant money and power centralized at the federal level. And he says that the first two years of the Trump administration demonstrates this. Um, but he also says because of something that's happened, states do have tremendous power to check the, check the authority of the general government when they decide to use it. 
But he also says this power is not always matched by a will to defend state powers or the wisdom to judge when resistance is appropriate. So he's attacking the states here as well. But he's saying the states are not necessarily going to, through, through repeal, aren't necessarily going to be more interested in federalism if they repealed it or not. And one of the things he does is bring up, he brings up money, brings up money. The states are slopping at the trough just like any other part of the American polity. And this is very true. The states are dependent on federal cash. Now, part of that is because the general government makes it so. This is going back to the Nixon administration. I talk about this in my nine presidents who screwed up America. Part of that is because of Nixon's new federalism. The idea was that you would give the states blocks of money, and then they could spend the money however they chose. However, it's not really however they chose because there were restrictions on that money. It had to be spent in these particular programs. So, for example, Medicaid. The states are going to get big blocks of Medicaid money, and they got to spend it on Medicaid. Now, the general government also requires, this is where you get to this idea of unfunded mandates, the general government also requires that the states come up with money to pay for other things, and they don't give them any money to do it. The states just have to come up with the money to do it. So that's where you might have fewer unfunded mandates if the states controlled the senators, because those unfunded mandates could potentially be blocked by um, senators who are beholden to the states for their appointment. So if the state legislature is saying, look, you've got too many unfunded mandates, do not, do not pass those. If you do, we're not going to keep you in your seat. Those unfunded mandates might go away. Now, the states do want federal cash. They want it all the time. This is true. And I think John York pre presents uh, a good argument that the states may not be interested in uh, reining in federal spending because they want the money too. And it's for all kinds of things, educational programs, health care, uh, road construction, whatever, even though that road construction money should be in the state anyways. I mean, the gas tax that the states collect could just stay in that particular state. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to look at this. I think John York, it's it a superficial analysis of things. Um, but certainly, certainly, Republican governments are not always good stewards of money. And they don't always, they're not always spendthrift. They're not always interested in not getting federal cash. They like it too, because it helps them in their re-election campaigns. Uh, and he does say, he does actually say this, while repealing the 17th Amendment may not result in less federal spending, money would likely flow down to the states with fewer strings attached. That alone would mark a significant rebalancing of power between the states and the federal government. Um, so, these are the unfunded mandates. Um, now, he does say this. This is kind of funny. However, freeing states to spend federal funds as they chose would not be altogether positive. States would have more latitude to devise their own policy solutions, but with federal grant money to fall back on, they would not need to bear the costs of their own policies. Instead, states would be able to continue benefiting from expensive social welfare programs and lavishing money on public sector employees without raising the necessary revenue themselves, knowing Congress would help foot the bill. Well, I mean, he's attacking the left-leaning states here. And that's potentially true, um, 
but uh, maybe not. I mean, this is it's potentially true. It could happen. But this is up for the states to decide. Now, of course, you could say, well, um, we need to rein in federal spending. So just repealing the 17th Amendment is not enough. I mean, I think one of the things that, that you should get out of this is that I would never argue that repealing the 17th Amendment is enough. It's, it's a step in the right direction. And there should be other restraints on federal power, other amendments in particular. And this is where if you had an Article 5 convention, you could push for some of these things. One of the ways to do it, of course, is an amendment which would give the states oversight in the Constitution. We can say there's the 10th Amendment, but there's no teeth to that. There's no enforcement mechanism. To have an amendment that would actually be an enforcement mechanism, you can look at that. That would be a positive development of an Article 5 convention, potentially. So that's that's often, you know, that's something else. Um, <clears throat> he also says, quote, ideology often drives state politicians to support federal solutions. Um, this is this is true. Uh, the the um, state governments often look to the federal government because well, they can't they can't take care of something with their own borders. And he's looking at, for example, environmental policies this way. Uh, he's looking at leftists who often say, "Okay, we're going to support uh, we'll support states' rights when it suits us, but we won't when it doesn't." And that's that's the case across the board. It doesn't matter uh, which which party you're talking about, Republicans or Democrats, if the if the policy supports their position, if states' rights supports their position, they'll support it, and they won't if it doesn't. I mean, this, this gets to the heart of what is wrong with people who don't understand federalism, is that it's, it's often determined by the issue itself. You know, you have a lot of leftists, for example, uh, supporting uh, the decriminalization of marijuana, but they don't support the criminalization of abortion in their state, for example. These are both state sovereignty issues. You have a lot of leftists who would support uh, sanctuary cities, but they wouldn't support states being able to uh, roll back environmental regulations. They're both state issues. So you got to have consistency, and part of that is education. The lefties, and this is where the 10th Amendment Center does a tremendous job with this, they support state sovereignty on both the left and the right. And it's why they have problems raising funds sometimes, because you have conservatives say, I support the 10th Amendment with gun control. I, I don't want any gun control. I want to restrict abortion. And then when the 10th Amendment comes out and says, you know, uh, th- we should we should uh, be supportive of, of states having control over their own immigration policy. No, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 you can't do that. So, or we should be supportive of the states having control over, uh, you know, drug decriminalization. No, no, no. Can't do that. There's federal laws there. Can't do that. So when you, when you start getting into a point where you're, where you're cutting across the, uh, the political spectrum and you're going in a, in a direction that would be state sovereignty, you're going to make enemies on both sides. And that's problematic because we've got this, frankly, stupid American political spectrum that can't get out of its own way when it comes to R and D. And the best example of that is uh, Dinesh D'Souza's Death of a Nation. And this D'Souza line that's been, Democrats are bad, Republicans are good. I mean, this is just so stupid. There's no other way to describe it. It's stupid. Uh, but he does say, in this piece, York does say, that when the states decide to use 
their sovereignty, they do have tremendous power. And that goes back to the uh, Adam Friedman book that I've talked about on this podcast before, A Less Perfect Union. He documents this. When the states decide to use their power, there's not a whole lot that the general government can do. I mean, he brings up immigration. If the states decide they're not going to enforce federal immigration standards, the federal, the, the federal government only has about 20,000 agents to go do this across the entire United States. So if the states say, ah, we're not going to do it, we're, we're going, not going to allow you to commandeer our law enforcement for your, for your purpose. And this is exactly what was happening in the 1850s when you had the Fugitive Slave Law. Federal marshals could go into states all day long and round up fugitive slaves, but the states in the north decided they weren't going to, they weren't going to use their uh, state resources to round up fugitive slaves. They just weren't going to do it. And so uh, that came down to you know, a battle between the states and the general government. Um, so if you'd look at it that way, well, yeah, the states can just refuse to do something that way in enforcing a law, and then the federal government has to do it. They're not saying the federal government can't enforce it, but then they're not going to have the manpower to do it. They'll, they'll round up some people. They'll do something. They'll, they'll get in. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, if the ATF had to be involved in enforcing gun control across the states, they wouldn't have the manpower to do it. It wouldn't be there for example. I mean, all of these things, the federal government just doesn't have the manpower, and they're not going to have the manpower to do these things. So when the states decide they're going to use their power, they have tremendous power to block the general government. We've seen it over and over again. The Tenth Amendment Center details and documents all the victories they've had in simply getting the states to say no about certain things. They've had tremendous number of victories. So the states do have the authority to do it, the key is, of course, education. This is why I talk about think locally, act locally. Um, it's why that, that phrase is essential. We have to educate people that the best thing you can do is take care of these issues on your own at the state and local level. There's no panacea. The states are not perfect. Without question, the states aren't perfect. But repealing the 17th Amendment would have a, dr a dramatic effect on the composition of the U.S. Senate. That's one thing whether you like that or not, but that's one thing that would happen. Uh, it probably would have a beneficial effect in getting people to pay more attention to their state governments. And certainly, if you started this conversation of federalism and what it can really do, as Friedman points out, the only, the only uh, entity powerful enough to check another government is a government. You have to have the states as the hedge. This is what Jefferson was talking about. It's what Calhoun was talking about. The states have to be the hedge. The states have to be the ones that can say, you know what, that law is unconstitutional. We're not going to enforce it here. On a host of issues left and right, real federalism, if you look at the original Constitution, real federalism was all over the place in it, and it was sold that way. James Wilson, the most ardent nationalist that you can find, or one of the most ardent nationalists in the entire general government, in his statehouse yard speech, said this. The powers of the states are limitless, except in essentially what's found in Article 1, Section 10, but the powers of the general government are limited by the document itself. The states can do whatever they want as long as it's not limited by the center, Article 1, Section 10. The general government can only do what's, what's delegated in this, expressly delegated, he actually said, in this document. So that's the key to understanding federalism. That's, if you understand the original Constitution, federalism makes the most sense of anything. And by looking at what they were talking about there, it's your, it's your domestic issues. It's all these things I just mentioned. These are all state issues. None of them 
are national issues. And again, I've talked about why people wring their hands, all this hand-wringing at the, at the quote-unquote national level, because we have razor-thin majorities. And all the hand-wringing that takes place there is because everything has to be a national issue. It's not so. It doesn't have to be that way. California could be a complete socialist mecca utopia, and anyone that had a brain would move out. And they could just have it. And the other states could say, you know what? Come on over to our state. We want you. We want you good Californians that aren't going to uh, subscribe to this mess that's becoming California. It's why I've even said California should just secede from the union. Just save us all the heartache. The entire general government would change at that point. Uh, but regardless of that, federalism is the solution. Think locally, act locally is the solution. The 17th Amendment repealing that would be a step in the right direction. So I support it. I support repealing the 17th Amendment. It's not going to be the, the uh, silver bullet, but it would be a step in the right direction. You've got to have other amendments, though, that would allow for the states to control the general government as well. But let's get rid of the 17th. More importantly, let's talk about think locally, act locally, because that is going to be the key to restoring federalism in America. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClaney Show.